From WDBM, East Lansing. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Our weekly news and storytelling program. Made by and for the students of Michigan State University. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Undercurrent. From WDBM East Lansing, welcome to The Undercurrent Season 10. Ten seasons old, we've hit the double digits. It's the season premiere, the fall semester of 2018 has kicked off here at MSU and we're back from our hiatus. I'll be your host, Cole Tunning. It's good to be here. I don't know about you, but I feel swamped with work right now. Classes have started and I was already working two jobs. It can feel overwhelming to have such a busy schedule and I know I'm not the only one who feels this way. That's why it's probably no coincidence that with that on my mind, the theme of today's episode turned out to be work. We'll be talking about jobs and bosses today. We're going to start the show with a story about our general manager here at Impact, Jeremy Whiting. Jeremy was hired this summer. He has a long history here at MSU and at the Impact specifically, where he's held multiple positions and once hosted our local music show, The Basement. On our episode today, you'll get to know him a little bit more. We also have an interview with the Sunrise Movement discussing a federal jobs guarantee. They came by the Impact Studios to tell us all about this new policy proposal, which is supported by Senators Bernie Sanders and Kirsten Gillibrand, and being considered more and more by prominent left-wing think tanks as a realistic and achievable goal. Jobs guarantee sounds all right to me. I mean, I can't host the undercurrent forever. All that is coming up next. place is special to us. It's special because of the people. And we all work here for different reasons. Some, like me, want a steady, secure job with benefits and a safe work environment. Some want to get promoted and go on to long-term careers with Walmart. Some just need a part-time job. We have just senior think, citizens. The sooner you get that pizza in the oven, the sooner our customers will be biting into it and tasting how delicious it is. And they'll have me to thank. <laughs> That's right. Because we're not just making pizza. We're creating an experience for our customers. No, not that kind of opportunist. You see, I'm one of the world's greatest authorities on opportunities. I find people who need help. And I help them. And clearly, you need some help especially with finding opportunities. I know an opportunity when I see it. Our job is to make sure they're never disappointed. I won't let them down. Okay, let's say the first order we get is for a medium pan pizza with pepperoni and green pepper. Our old general manager, Ed Glazer, has moved out west to chase his dreams. And his replacement, Jeremy Whiting, is the subject of our first story today. Reporter Sophie Sagan met with him to talk about his past and our future. Meet Jeremy, our new radio dad. It's not every day that you get to interview your boss. And it's not every day that you get a boss as easygoing and friendly as mine. To prove my point, when I asked him if he wanted to be interviewed for The Undercurrent this week, he said yes without giving it even a second thought. And three hours later, we were in the studio. He's the newest general manager of Impact 89FM, just hired this summer to fill the role left by former GM Ed Glazer. Without any further ado, I'll let him introduce himself. You want to start with the easy question, your name and where you're from? Sure. My name is Jeremy Whiting, and I am 
currently the general manager of Impact 89FM. I went to Michigan State for my bachelor's and uh, master's degrees and teaching certifications from 2000 to 2010. And before that, I call home Lake Orion uh, in the metro Detroit area. While you were at MSU, did you have a connection to the Impact? Yeah, so I waited until my sophomore year, I believe, to start working at the Impact. And I didn't plan on going into radio, but I thought I would be super disappointed if I didn't at least try working at a college radio station. Just to be able to say when I was older, oh, I did college radio when I was at MSU. So I was very nervous, but I came in and I did it. And my original thought was to just do production work, but they kind of forced us to all have air shifts. So I started that and I found out that I really liked doing that. So I went on to be a DJ. I was uh, in a number of different director positions. I hosted The Basement, the local music show. So I had a good run. We had a, a good time. So where has he been the last eight years? Well, after leaving MSU, he dove headfirst into teaching high school in a nearby district. And he loved it. He found a job where he felt valued and supported. He loved the students in the school. But then one day he got a call from Ed. How did you hear that the position had opened up? Yeah, so so Ed Glazer's been the general manager for the last few years, um, and Ed was actually a director when I was a director. So at one point, I was his boss as station manager, um, and he was web director or something like that. Um, but yeah, Ed, Ed was around for a long time, and I'm friends with him. And so he gave me a heads up that the position was opening, and he said, I you know, I know you're really happy with your job, but just so you know, I'm moving to California, and uh, this is opening up, and you know, I think you'd be a great candidate. And so he gave me a heads up, uh, and that's how I found out about it. But even though he had loved the impact in college, he wasn't initially sure he wanted to come back. Like I said, he loved his job at the high school and it had become really important to him. So what was your, yeah, so you said initial reaction was kind of hesitant. Did you get any input from your family or from the people you were working with before? Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) What, uh, it was a big leap because, you know, your identity in some ways, you know, a slice of your life is built on, you know, what you do as a career. And so I was considering uh, a fairly significant change in my career instead of being a teacher. And uh, it was hard to go around and figure out, well, you know, what what do you want to do in life? You know, it was, it was a difficult decision choosing between two things that you knew were very, very good. And Walking into the first interview here at The Impact, Jeremy still wasn't sure he was ready to take that leap of faith. But as he continued through the process, he became more and more confident that this is where he wanted to be. In conversations here, like through the interview process, talking with the current directors and being back in the station, um, I was getting sad about possibly not getting it and having to leave. And and that's when I started to really know, like, yeah, I think I really, really, really do want to come back and have this job. So what was your reaction when you found out that you got it? Uh, I was incredibly happy. I was, um, I, I, I trusted that I, I was a good candidate, you know, so I thought I had a pretty good chance of being uh, called back at least, you know, for a second or third interview. Uh, but when I got word that I was the pick if I, if I wanted it, um, yeah, it was uh, almost a little emotional because I was here for eight years. You know, I was at MSU for 10 years. I was at The Impact for eight years. And it was something unexpected in my life to be coming back to it. Uh, so in many ways, it felt like a homecoming. And so, uh, yeah, I was ecstatic. <laughs> <laughs> so now he's here and he's killing the game. Of course, there have been adjustments, but overall, he's excited about all of the new experiences. 
it's a different role than when I was here as a student station manager. So it's been really, really cool to be able to be in the position as almost the final say on a lot of things and just do things like, Hey, I, I think we should do that. And it doesn't have to go through hoops to get done. A lot of the times I can just say, yeah, let's just do that. And there's such a great freedom to that, to be able to know, yeah, this is the right decision. And I think my time away has actually helped in that because I'm able to take all of that knowledge and come in with authority and say, yeah, I, I do know what's right. I, I am the expert on this and I don't feel like it's a cocky thing. I just know that I have that experience. If there's one thing that I took away from my conversation with Jeremy, it's that you just never know where life is going to take you. I asked him if he'd had any time to reflect or if he'd had a moment of clarity since entering this new position. And he said yes. It was in this room. So we're sitting here currently breaking the fourth wall. We're, we're in one of the studios here at The Impact. And uh, it was maybe a week ago, something like that. It was late. It was like 11 o'clock or something. And I forgot what I was in here for. Um, but I'm just sitting in here, uh, sitting in your seat right there, just kind of looking around and just kind of thinking about, yeah, some things are looking different. I was actually looking on a Facebook post of one of my friends and they had an impact friend from back in the day and they posted an old photo of them interviewing a band right here in this room. And I sat down in the same seat where they were with the same microphone and everything. I was like, man, this is like 10 years later and how unexpected that I would be able to just be sitting here and, and be in the same position and totally different role, you know, but and things are different, but it's the same. And it was just like, uh, you know, it was like late at night. It was just like one of those weird things like, man, weird how life works out, you know? And uh, it, was, it was pretty cool that that popped up on my phone just as I was sitting here. Even though he's no longer technically a teacher, Jeremy is still impacting students every single day here at the station. And I think I speak for all of us when I say I'm looking forward to working with him. For Impact Student News, I'm Sophie Sagan. Cool. Well, that was like, those are all my questions pretty much. Um, cool. I don't know. Was there anything else you wanted to say? No, no. I always like that end question. But yeah, I, I'm just super, super happy to be back. And, and thank you for having me. Cool. No, thank you for being here. Um, sweet. Cool. Awesome. That's all I got. Cool. Welcome back to The Undercurrent. That was reporter Sophie Sagan talking to Jeremy Whiting, our new general manager. Now it's time for a quick Impact Weekly update, some international news for you. There is outrage in Brazil, as its current presidential frontrunner, Jair Bolsonaro, was stabbed in a recent, seemingly politically motivated attack. The candidate has now returned to stable conditions, but lost over a third of his blood. Bolsonaro is the current head of the far-right group heading Brazil's ongoing presidential election. He is likely to win the first round of votes in October, but will most likely not win any runoff elections. Bolsonaro recently said, quote, Brazil comes before anything, and God before anyone. I'm with you, Brazil. End quote. In a video recorded from his hospital bed, where he is recovering from surgery due to his punctured intestines, Former President Luiz da Silva remains blocked from standing in prison, but his leftist party is still predicted to win over Bolsonaro. This has been your International News with Nick Seba. And thank you for that, Nick. I'm your host, Cole Tunningly, and coming up next is an interview with two activists from the Sunrise Movement. They came by the studio to talk about a jobs guarantee, the benefits of this policy, what it would look like in real life, and more. Here it is. 
Yeah, my name is Will Lawrence, and I am the Michigan director and a co-founder of Sunrise. Hi, I'm Arjun, and I'm uh, Arjun Jayaraman, and I am a Lansing Sunrise Semester Fellow. And can you start by just telling me what is this Jobs Guarantee event? When is it? Um, what's it all about? Yeah, so um, just briefly for your listeners, Sunrise is a movement of young people around the country working to stop climate change and create millions of good jobs for our generation in the process. We're a nationwide movement, people anywhere from 14 to 35, 40, when the young at heart. And um, we're doing a lot of work around this uh, midterm election. And um, one of the things that we're looking at for beyond the midterm is a is a national campaign to popularize a jobs guarantee program as the solution to climate change. That is to say, we can put every single person in this country who needs a job to work in the process of decarbonizing our economy and keeping our people safe in the face of the change that's already happening. So um, we're doing an event on October 22nd, um, and uh, we actually just locked down the time. Um, it's going to be 6 to 9 p.m. Location is actually TP TBD. We're planning to do it somewhere here on campus. Um, but to begin to talk about this idea of a job guarantee and what it could do for us here at uh, in East Lansing and in, in mid-Michigan. Can you tell me where did this idea come from? Where did it originate? Is it implemented in other countries right now? Has it shown itself in American history? Yeah, yeah. It, it's um, – oh, this is Arjun, by the way. Um, it's – it's uh, in in terms of this movement, uh, the jobs guarantee. It started, you know, in the twentieth century. Um, there were large uh, uh, action. There was large action around it during the union movements of the thirties, twenties uh, and thirties, and um, and then there was also, uh, you know, post World War and during the New Deal time, there was a lot of. Um, there's a lot of uh, arguments in favor of it. Uh, a lot of people pushing for it too. And uh, during the civil rights movement, um, both Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King were very much for this. Um, uh, and in fact, Martin Luther King's uh, uh, March on Washington was the March for Jobs and Freedom. And, um, and Coretta Scott did a ton of work with this. She actually set up a foundation. And there's been talk about this throughout um, throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. What is different about this right now is that we have the urgency of climate change. Um, and that is incredibly important. And, um, you know, uh, so we need, you know, um, we've just read reports and, and looking at this, we need something like a Marshall Plan, you know, or bigger than that to really get us or like a post or like a World War II, you know, how we change the economy overnight um, from, you know, from making consumer goods to making war goods and, and all this. And it really helped to win the war. Uh, we need something like that. Uh, but for this climate movement, um, for, um, for climate change, um, because that's a war on everyone. So uh, we are trying to, um, what's the best way to put this? Uh, we want to, uh, um, sorry, uh, we want to better, um, uh, uh, we want to 
we need a a jobs guarantee program that's going to that's going to be democratically controlled. That's going to say, hey, what are the most important things going? What are the most important roles going into the twenty first century? And that to us is not only hard hat jobs like making renewable energy a reality and getting us to 100% renewables and all of that, updating our infrastructure, um, all these things that are talked about, but it's also healthcare work and education, low carbon jobs like that, that are going, you know, taking care of people and making sure that they're well compensated and making sure that that healthcare is not just something that is only afforded to the most wealthy amongst us, but is given to to all regardless of race, class, or background. And are there any politicians in America specifically on board with this right now or talking about this? Yeah, this is something that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been talking about. Um, Bernie Sanders is planning to introduce a bill this fall. We've also seen expressions of support from other potential 2020 presidential contenders like Kristen Gillenbrand, Cory Booker, uh, and uh, again, there's a, a going to be a process of determining which of these policies actually meet the grade. Cory Booker has a very Cory Bookerish version of this policy, where he's kind of introducing it as a, a test plan and kind of sticking his toes in so that he can get the press on it, but without necessarily endorsing the full scope of the program that we need. So there's a, a political debate coming around that, but um, I think. Uh, from these expressions of support, especially from the presidential contenders, we can see that um, people are seeing this as a potentially very popular issue and something we expect is going to play a big role in the 2020 campaign. Mm-hmm. And one of the nice things about uh, this, one of the nice, like, few bright spots in the post-2016 landscape of politics is that there is real... Uh, movement uh, at the grassroots level for moral uh, um, for moral policy, meaning that it's not just about okay, what's going to save us the most money? What's going to save us overall? And what are the what are the metrics and and everything? And will this increase the debt? Will this decrease the debt? That was always that was always something that was talked about, even in two thousand nine, two thousand ten timeframe. And now it's we. We, we want to provide health care. We want to provide good jobs. We want to mitigate climate change, not, be, not only because it'll ultimately save us and everybody and spur on growth. It will, um, it's the right thing to do. And it's as simple as that. What kinds of pushback do you get on this idea from people and how do you counter that? Um, I think the, the biggest one is, oh, well, that's, that's not possible. Or... We, we can't have nice things. <laughs> and that's because we've been so browbeaten by the last 45 years of political common sense in this country that the Democrats have subscribed to as well as the Republicans, which basically says that government is bad and big business can take care of it. And if we just cut their taxes and let them work, it's going to trickle down to the rest of us. And we've seen how that works or doesn't work. And so um, I think from an from a older generation, um, there's still uh, people who subscribe to that way of thinking or think that if you have a big government program, the government is going to give people jobs or guarantee people jobs, that must be 
that can be possible because you have to talk about shrinking the government. You can't talk about actually making government work for people. Um, but the world's changing real fast. And as Arjun was saying, um, I think there's a, there's a generation coming up in our politics that are ready to put government to work for us because government at its best is just the organized expression of the popular will. That's us. And if we need to transform our economy, if we need to educate each other, if we need to take care of each other, we can use the resources of the government to help us do that. One of the things about, uh, just to add to that, um, that lovely response, um, uh, part of, uh, um, you know, the, when we just looked at the polling data for this, and the jobs guarantee is popular not just among uh, liberals or leftists or uh, from all different corners, but it's, it's, it's popular among the people that don't vote, and it's popular among Republicans, too, people that voted for Trump. Everybody, this is an idea that everybody can get behind. Everybody, uh, you know, it's part of the American Protestant ideal to just, uh, uh, to, to, to work incredibly. Who doesn't want a job? Yeah, who doesn't want a job, who doesn't want to work. Everybody, it's, it's a very simple notion. Anybody that wants to work full time can. Um, and considering that, you know, if you take into account the underemployed, meaning that, you know, at its most basic level, people that um, uh, only have part-time jobs or work far below their skill level or whatever. Driving when they, for Uber. Yeah, yeah. When, yeah, when they want full-time work, when they desire full-time work, that's nearly double. That's, that's almost the same as the quote-unquote unemployed population. And um, so, I mean, it's, it's not... Whenever you have one of these arguments like universal basic income and whatever, it can be demonized very easily by the right or uh, all sorts of other political actors that would just say these people are lazy. But it's one of the easiest sells to say, okay, you want a job? You want to work? You can work. Here's something for you to do that will do this or everything else. And then it really does affect people on a visceral. People don't, most people are really apolitical. And so this is something where they can, if it's their day-to-day existence, people don't think, people think about their jobs, they think about their families, and they think about their communities, and they think about what's going on um, just generally. And this is a way to make sure that, uh, this is a way to uh, um, actually get them thinking about these issues if it's something that they have to stare at every single day. Mm-hmm. And do you think the conversation is shifting towards more populist policies like this? Are there other examples besides the jobs guarantee where people are thinking these maybe ideas that seemed radical don't seem as radical anymore in the face of climate change or the whatever you'd call the hell Mm -hmm. that we Mm -hmm. live in right now? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think we saw over the course of this summer, the idea of abolishing ICE went from something that only grassroots activists were willing to say into something that United States senators were calling for in the space of about two weeks during the family separation crisis, which is still continuing, by the way. There are still kids who are detained, separated from their families, and the Trump administration has no plan even now to reunite them. And that has to be said every chance we get. But again, over the course of these several weeks, this is the kind of moral crisis that really clarifies the stakes. And it says... We can't just say, oh, stop separating 
the kids from their families, but leave the rest of the deportation machine in place. That's a hard moral line to walk. Once people start to see the actual reality of people being separated from their families, which is the truth of all deportation, then it becomes much easier to say, no, this actually has to stop. We can't have this deportation machine that is ICE. So that's an example of, I think, a demand that went from the just the political fringe into the common sense very quickly. Um, I don't know, Arjun, anymore? Um, well, I think the jobs guarantee is becoming something that's becoming politically mainstream. And also, uh, um, I would say that... Uh, um, I would say that a lot of uh, um, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez's, um, you know, um, common sense, uh, whether it's the Green New Deal, uh, you know, as she calls it, her jobs guarantee platform, or she calls it uh, universal health care, uh, Medicare for all. Uh, that is something that people can just, that's why they call it Medicare for all, because it's something that everybody knows is a program. Uh, and from conservative to liberal, the leftists across the spectrum, um, people love people that have Medicare love their Medicare if they get significant coverage on it. The only time that they don't like it is if they're partially covered or whatever. And the most popular provision in Obamacare was Medicaid, um, the Medicaid expansion. So President uh, Obama actually just uh, yeah. endorsed Medicare for all yeah. at sorts today at his, his speech he made down in Illinois. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. that's fun. Learn something new every day. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got us a little bit off track, but back to talking about the jobs oh, guarantee please. specifically. Um, how would this work for people and benefit people who cannot work? People who are disabled or, you know. Yeah. So I think what uh, you see in most of the proposals that have been put forward you actually pair this with something like a universal basic income, which guarantees a livable income to people regardless of their work status. Um, and because we can't get into a place of um, means testing people, oh, are you really able to work? Are you not? That just leads us into territory that we don't want. And the fact is, is that we live in the richest country in the world. We have tremendous abundance and we have enough resources for everybody to be able to eat and live a dignified life. Um, fact is, is that most people want to work because that's one of the things that gives our life meaning is the ability to contribute to our communities. Um, there are people who are unable to do many kinds of work because of disabilities or other things you mentioned. Um, people are caring for children. Again, back in the 70s, there was a, a wages for housework campaign, which just reinforces this key idea that, frankly, we're all working on a daily basis to sustain our communities in a variety of ways. And so you had uh, feminists who said, look, uh, <laughs> this work that's mostly done by women is not paid. Why is that? It's probably because of sexism. So we should provide wages for housework. Again, getting a little far afield, but the point is that we're all, we're all part of the same community. We all have the right to the basic stuff you need to survive and thrive alongside each other. And and we can pair this with a something like a basic income so that everybody can have the opportunity to work and can still eat even if they can't. Uh, just to add to that, speaking as a disabled American, I am in a wheelchair and I have MS, um, and it does definitely limit my mobility and energy levels and fatigue and all of this. Um, I still want to work. And the times that I've been just on disability with no... Uh, um, no interaction with uh, community or whatever else, 
Um, it had been some of the most depressing times of my life. It, it really does suck when you are just disabled and you're not able to contribute to anything. So it's a, that's one of the biggest uh, crises in the unemployment uh, um, crash of, of 2008, 2009, was people just felt isolated. And people eventually dropped out of, you know, looking for jobs, actively seeking employment um, and all that. So, um, you know, having having the ability to do anything, even if it's only for a few hours a week, even if even if you're only able to contribute as, you know, as much as your body will allow, which some days might be very, very little. Um, uh, I, I know this from personal experience, some days, uh, you know, I only have the energy to, um, you know, uh, get, you know, um, do work from my computer at home and, you know, and m maybe make a meal or whatever. But um, it's still important to, that we value um, everyone. We value everyone regardless of ability level or anything. As long as they, as long as they're enthusiastic and want to contribute, we should we should treasure that. I hope you enjoyed the show and thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank reporter Sophie Sagan for her work on this week's episode, our general manager Jeremy Whiting, our station manager Olive Mitchell, and our programming director Simon Ferenzi. I've been your host, Cole Tunningly. I hope you have a great day. Bye. <laughs>